listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tucson. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Suzanne Feldman about her latest novel, Sisters of the Great War. Suzanne is the recipient of the Missouri Review uh, Jeffrey E. Smith Editor's Prize and was a finalist for the Bakeless Prize in fiction. Her fiction has appeared in the Missouri Review as well as other literary journals, and Kirkus has compared her writing to Faulkner and Toni Morrison. She's also the author of the novel Absalom's Daughters. And finally, she has written science fiction under the pen name of Saverna Park, in which she won a Lambda Literary Award for her novel, Speaking Dreams. Suzanne, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let, let's jump right in with a, a question about writing. Do you have a particular time or day that you write? I've interviewed other authors, and they some of them write in the morning, some of them write in the evening. Some of them have a favorite coffee shop they go to. What's your process? Well, when I was working, and I'm a retired person now, um, I, and I was a teacher in public schools, and I would come home from school about 3 o'clock, and I would gulp tremendous amounts of coffee, and I would write for about two hours. And so that was, you know, very stressful, and, and it took a long time to write anything. But now what I do is I, I get up, now that I'm retired, I get up in the morning, have breakfast, walk the dog, and then at about 10.30, I start writing, and I work until about 2 when the dog comes in and wants to be walked again and then <laughs> fed, and then I fix dinner. So it's, um, it's much more relaxing now. I get a lot more done. Do, do you write from home? I do write from home. I, uh, I have a little office in my house, and I, uh, you know, kind of close the door and start working. Good. I, I, I was interested when I had Kent Kruger on the show. He said he always goes to a coffee shop because he can only write where it's noisy. Really? Uh, which I thought was rather interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, I must have silence or, like, very particular music. <laughs> well, let's, let's jump into the writing a little bit more. So when you're going to create a story, do you outline the story first? Do you create characters in your head, or do you just start writing? Well, I'm sure that since you've um, interviewed other writers, you know the difference between plotters and pantsers. <laughs> and plotters, of course, are the people who write everything out first in an outline, and pantsers are the ones who sit down at their laptops and go, oh, there's a blank page. I guess I should put something on it. And that's how I work. Uh -huh. I just, if I have an outline, it's like, well, the book is already written. Why should I do more? So... Uh, I really like the discovery part of writing. It's like, you know, I just don't know what that character is going to do next, and it just opens up doors and doors and doors. So, and, and that really, that makes me very happy. It makes it very involving for me. Well, you know, as you say that, I've had some authors say if they create a good character, the character helps write the story. In fact, I remember having uh, Gary Goche on, and he said, sometimes my characters say, no, I'm not going there. And I have to re reverse and go in another direction. Have you had the experience of the character help once you've developed it or developed them helping write the story? Well, I, I think that is part of what happens. Um, I've never, I've never really felt like I've been taking dictation, mm -hmm. you know, from a character or from you know the sky. Uh, I, um, I actually had an answer for this. Um, and the and one of the things is that I'm actually a two-fingered typist, and I uh, don't really watch the screen as I'm typing. I'm like trying to hit the right letter. 
And um, so when I look up at the screen, everything is kind of a surprise. Oh, wow, that does sound good. I think we'll go in that direction. Or, oh, my God, what is that? Must erase, you know. Okay. Well, um, let me jump back a little bit because I said this in the intro that you started off writing science fiction under the Mm -hmm. name Severna Park, which I understand is a park not that far from where you live. It is a suburb of Baltimore. Okay. Um, (laughs) What is it that made you decide to take the turn from science fiction to historical fiction? And do you you need a different mindset for that? With science fiction, um, those three novels under Severna Park were published in the late 90s. And I love science fiction. I just, you know... The only problem was that there were so few women in the field at the time who were writing, you know, about women and, you know, getting any notice, and even fewer gay and lesbian writers. So I, you know, kind of jumped into that and uh, was well-received, which was very nice. Um, And then after the third novel, I kind of ran out of science fiction ideas. So um, I went to uh, Johns Hopkins for my master's degree in creative writing, and then that was when I discovered Faulkner, uh, and uh, and that's when I wrote Absalom's Daughters, which is kind of a, a riff on Faulkner that you don't have to read Faulkner to enjoy. Um, but in terms of a mindset, like with science fiction, if you think of writing a book as building a tent, um, you have to create the tent in science fiction. You know, you've got to create the world, the rules of the world, sometimes even the physics of the world and possibly even the people of the world. And in historical fiction, the poles for the tent are there, and those are, you know, the facts of history. And you have to build the tent, you know, and sort of, you know, paint your version of it. And uh, you know there are going to be human beings in there, hopefully. Uh, and so you kind of have to, you know, insert them into the, uh, the historical action. So it is a little bit different, but, you know, some of the world building and character building are really not that much different at all. Do you, do you favor one or the other? Right now, I'm really into historical fiction. Okay. You know, I've, I've just kind of switched over to that. And, um, you know, uh, Pam Jenoff is a wonderful author mm-hmm. to read for that. Um, and, uh, you know, there's okay. just a lot out there right now. All right. Well, let's let's talk about your historical fictions. And I'm going to first ask a little bit about Absalom's Daughter and, mm-hmm. well, well, at least compare it with Sisters of the, War, of the Great War. You set Absalom's Daughter in the Deep South in the 1950s, a clear time of turmoil down here. Mm-hmm. And then you set Sisters of the Great War in Europe at the outset of World War I uh, in 1914, another time of turmoil. Mm-hmm. Is there a reason that you picked these time periods? Well, my mom grew up in Texas in the 19, uh, well, actually earlier than the 1950s. And, um, but she was a teenager, like, right after World War II. Mm-hmm. And so I could ask her questions about, you know, the Deep South and, um, you know, what was going on for her. She, she grew up in a really, really poverty-stricken situation. And so, and so did the characters in um, Absalom's Daughters. Um, the Sisters of the Great War, I'm the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, so I knew I wanted to write something about, you know, with a war in it, but I knew I couldn't write about World War II. It's just, you know, too close to home. Mm-hmm. And um, so World War I came up in my mind, and I thought, you know, what can I do with that? Um, since it's, uh, you know, trench warfare really doesn't go anywhere. It's hard to write about it unless you're writing, you know, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. 
and that's been done. So I um, I decided to look at what the women were doing, you know, behind the front lines. Um, but you know, in terms of turmoil, you know, turmoil is sort of the the core of fiction because uh, you do want conflict, obviously. Yeah. And so whether it's you know family conflict or military conflict, uh, you know, it, often that's the turning point in history that's you know just so important, you know, where things just change. Uh, you know, in the 50s, it was um, integration in schools and in society. And in World War One, it was the old world where you could ride into battle on a white horse with a sword. That that was over because, you know, now they had tanks and machine guns. And that was, um, you know, it was a real turning point in history for uh, for making war. And, and culturally, too. Exactly. Um, you know. Um, now, in each of these novels, your characters are, you know, basically strong women in difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And I always like to ask authors where these characters come from. Um, are these autobiographical or, or composites? Um, they're composites. And I think that, um, you know, most women go through difficult situations, you know, no matter when they have been alive, uh, and I'm sure in the future and certainly now. Um, and so... You know, it's so common that women are in difficult situations that they must struggle to get out. It's like, you know, it happens every day. I'm not even sure why people want to read about it, but they do. And uh, so I think that a lot of people want to see, uh, you know, women like themselves succeeding in a struggle that is a very tough one. So they themselves can, you know, see through difficult situations, just like characters in, in a book. Well, you know, good novels, and you know this better than I, have mm-hmm. universal themes. And yeah. so whether you're male or female, reading folks in those situations can resonate, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. All right. So let's talk more about history and writing a historical novel. Mm-hmm. So you decide you're going to do something on World War One. I'm mm-hmm. assuming at the outset, maybe you knew a little bit, but you didn't know a whole lot about what the nurses and the doctors and others did during World War One. Is that right. a fair statement? H- how long did it take you to research that? Well, I, I got a lot of books. We have um, a used bookstore here called Wonder Book and Video. And uh, I got a book from, and I just sort of went over there. They have nothing new. Everything is at least 20 years old over there. So I found some very old um very interesting books, including one uh, that was the myth and mythology of World War One, and it was just this guy who had written down every peculiar soldier's tale that he had ever heard, and um, and written them down. Um, I also did research with the, the diaries of nurses who had been in the war. Um, some were very sort of off the cuff, like you know, oh, the men came in, they were wounded, but we all sang and had a good time. And some were like, you know, just uh, obviously ground down by the circumstances. But um, I didn't, you know, just like set aside a time to research. I kind of write until I get to a point where I don't know what was going on, and then I do my research, and then I come back to the story. Okay. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. When I was reading it, I was reminded of, this is crazy, but it's true. You know, it was always a little controversial to have female nurses. And during the Civil War, for example, when they finally decided to have them, the women had to be, quote, plain looking, close quote, and over, <laughs> and over 30 in order to be a nurse. 
Um, did you see anything like that in your research on no, global warming? No, that is the first I've heard of that. Oh, yes, but that's awesome. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's true. Wow. Right. Yeah. All right. So um, let's talk about these characters a little bit too, because they're mm-hmm. very interesting. In Sisters of the Great War, there is this tension between Ruth and her father. Uh, he has, for lack of a better way to put it, very antiquated way, views about women and the roles that they should play. But he's also haunted by the loss of his wife, and perhaps because even a mis- mistake he made. Is he just a captive of the mores of the time, or are you drawing on some real-life father-daughter issues? Well, my father and I got along very well, so it's 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 not an autobiographical thing, but... Okay. I mean, you can you can see these dysfunctional families everywhere, and Mr. Duncan is part of the dysfunctional Duncan family, and um, he serves sort of as a marker for how screwed up things were for women at the end of the 19th century. Yeah. And the real miracle is that the grandfather character, you know, has any faith at all in you know these girls uh, succeeding in what they and uh, what they eventually you know what their goals are. So yeah, he's. You know, it's it's like the end of the Edwardian era, where women were, you know, either like um, serving wenches or wives, and you know, or you know, some sort of royal, you know, uh, variant. Uh, and they just had they were not allowed to do anything. And um, I don't know if you've heard of this um, story. It's called the Yellow Wallpaper, and I would have to think uh, mm-hmm. who the author is, but. Uh, it's about a woman who, you know, was around, uh, her lifetime was during the late 1800s, and she was a writer, but they took away all her paper and all her pencils and pens, and they put her in a room with yellow wallpaper, and it drove her crazy. And what she did was she peeled all the wallpaper off the walls to find the world on the other side. Oh, wow. Oh, it's a really amazing story. Operates on several levels, yeah. Yeah, it really it's uh, it's like wow. Can I yeah. get you to read an excerpt, uh, perhaps, uh, from Sisters of the Great War? How long do I have? Well, can you give me two or three minutes of it, and then we'll jump back in? Okay. I will read from the first chapter. Okay. So many pages before the first chapter. <laughs> Okay, so this is in Baltimore, Maryland, and I love Baltimore. Okay. Uh, August 1914. Ruth Duncan fanned herself with the newspaper in the summer heat as Grandpa Gerald put up a British flag outside the house. If he had a uniform of any kind, he would have worn it. People on the sidewalk paused and pointed, but Grandpa, still a proper English gent even after almost 20 years in the U.S., smoothed his white beard and straightened his waistcoat, ignoring the onlookers. That's done, he said. Ruth's own interest in the war was limited to what she read in the paper from across the dining room table. Grandpa would snap the paper open before he ate breakfast, and she could see the headlines in the back side of the last page, but not much more. Grandpa would grunt his appreciation of whatever was inside, whatever was inside, snort at what displeased him, and sometimes laugh. On August 12th, the headline in the Baltimore Sun read, France and Great Britain declare war on Austria-Hungary, and Grandpa wasn't laughing. Cook brought in the morning mail and put it on the table next to Grandpa. She was a round, gray-haired woman who left a puff of flour behind her wherever she went. Letter from England, sir, Cook said, leaving the envelope and a dusting of flour on the dark mahogany. She smiled at Ruth and left for the kitchen. Grandpa tore open the letter. 
Ruth waited while he read. It was from Richard and Diane Dowling, his friends in London who, were, who still wrote to him after all these years. They'd sent their son John to Harvard in Massachusetts for his medical degree. Ruth had never met John Dowling, but she was jealous of him, his opportunities, his apparent successes. The Dowlings sent letters whenever John won some award or other. No doubt this was more of the same. Ruth drummed her fingers on the table and eyed the dining room clock. In 10 minutes, she would need to catch the trolley that would take her up to the Loyola College of Nursing, where she would be taught more of the things she had already learned from her father. The nuns of Loyola were dedicated nurses, and they knew what they were doing. Some were outstanding teachers, but others were simply mired in the medicine of the last century. Ruth, Ruth was frustrated and bored, but Father paid her tuition, and what Father wanted, Father got. Excellent. All right. Is well, that good enough? Okay. Oh, that's perfect. All now, right, thanks. Now, Ruth has a sister in the yeah. book, and that's Elise uh, Duncan. And you have Elise dealing with her awareness or growing awareness of her sexual orientation triggered mm -hmm. when she meets a woman who is dressed as a man. And back to the social mores, her father um, confides in Ruth that Elise is, I think this is the word you use, is as a retardation in her emotional development. Yeah. So again, the other sister, who, who I really like, by the way, as a character, oh, thank you. <laughs> is confronted with the social and sexual mores of the time in a slightly different way than Ruth. Did you did you know going in, or how did you how did you come to the conclusion that you know what I'm going to have both of these sisters confront the times that they live in? Well, I think um, if they don't, there's really not a story because you know they would just have stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, as a gay woman, I wanted to talk about gay culture in a time when gay people were barely acknowledged, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, villainized and victimized, and Elise is like an explorer in a foreign land, and so is Ruth. I mean, they're both, you know, breaking ground so where no woman has gone before. Um, and I, you know, again, I don't really plan on these things. I just know that something's going to happen, and when I look up from my keyboard, there it is. So it's, uh, you okay. know, I, um, I feel like I really got to know these, these two characters very well just right. from, you know, what they presented to me. Well, hopefully we are past the time where having an LGBTQ character is noteworthy, but is this something that you have to think about when you're creating a character like Elise? Well, used to be, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now it's not so, um, you know, controversial, I guess. Right. Um, I do uh, read my reviews on Goodreads, and there are a couple on there that are like, you know, except for the lesbians, yeah. <laughs> this was a really good book. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and it's just, it just never goes away, so you just have to laugh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, well, I, I think I, I mentioned to you before we went on the air, and this is a good sign, the National Book Award, uh, this this just announced the other day, is by a book that seems to have a little bit of a similar uh, background or similar mm -hmm. storyline. Last night at the Telegraph Club, which has a teenage daughter of a Chinese immigrant discovering her sexuality in the 50s. So hopefully we get past all of that, but uh, we mm -hmm. find ourselves where we are. Let me ask you this. Since you, you mentioned it, I had Barb Johnson, a, a friend and a writer, gay writer, and she bristles at the idea of being characterized as a gay writer. How, mm -hmm. Do you prefer just to be considered a writer, period? Yeah, I think so. Okay. You know, it's it's hard enough. You know, they say, "Oh, well, you're a woman writer writing oh. about women." Yeah. 
you know, um, yes. <laughs> okay. But I'm also just writing. Can, so, yeah. Can you... uh, it's, it's hard to be, you know, pigeonholed. And, some, and then on the other hand, the pigeonhole is where people know where to find your books. Yeah, that's true. Can I get you to read one more excerpt, maybe something about Elise? You bet. Let me get to Elise's chapter here. Oh, okay. Do you would you rather have her in the first in the second chapter where she's following the woman dressed as a man? Whatever you, like... you want whatever you want to read. Okay. I will read the this is from um, when they actually are uh, in Belgium at the war. Okay. Elise's ambulance was really just a truck, what Matron called a lorry, with six racks in the back for stretchers and a big red cross on either side of the canvas cover flapping in a light wind. Elise, in her new uniform, had been marched out of the barracks with three other women who had just joined the ambulance corps. Now they stood in a huddle while their matron, a heavyset woman with a cigarette hanging out of the corner of her mouth, read off the rules and regulations from a clipboard. No men in the barracks, she said. No smoking in the barracks. She, sh she took a drag on the cigarette and eyed them one at a time. And no quitting. You're signed up for six months. Six months you shall stay. Yes, matron, chorused two of the women, sounding enthusiastic. Matron scowled at Elise and the willow-thin girl next to her. There had been no introductions. Yes, matron, and the other girl mumbled. The wind shifted, ringing with it the smell of something burning. Elise glanced down the line of 20 ambulances, thinking that maybe one of them had caught fire. The trucks, the lorries, were a haphazard collection of old and new, tires taped against old blowouts, fenders dented. There was no fire that she could see, but what she did see surprised her. Even though they were rim-deep in mud, the ambulances were all spotlessly clean. Matron continued to read off the rules. The girl beside Elise nudged her with an elbow. What do you think happened to the drivers we're replacing, she whispered. Um, said Elise, maybe their six months were up? No talking, snapped Matron. The girl ducked her head, and Elise tried to smile. She wanted to be as enthusiastic as the other two women, but something was on fire. Smoke was now rising in thick black puffs from behind a grove of mangled trees, and there was a constant low booming that she could feel through her feet. Wasn't anyone paying attention? Excuse me, she said when Matron lowered the clipboard. Excuse me, Matron. Excuse me, Matron, said Elise. There's a fire, she pointed to the rising smoke. Shouldn't we call someone? Everyone looked toward where she was pointing. As if, as if to emphasize the danger, something exploded in the distance, throwing flames into the air along with the smoke. Elise glanced at Matron, who plucked the cigarette from her mouth and flicked off the ash. Darling girl, she said. That's only the war. That's that's excellent. Well, let me. <laughs> I, I, we're going to run out of time here in just a second. So let me ask you a question that I often ask folks, um, even when they're writing fiction, mm -hmm. that writing can be self-illuminating. You learn things about yourself when you're writing and creating characters and creating stories. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that uh, you know? I've had authors tell me, for example, I learned to forgive myself for something they thought they had done, or forgive a parent for something mm -hmm. they thought they had done. Is there anything that you learned about yourself in writing this novel? Um, that is a really tough question, and um, I guess I have to answer it by saying this is uh, the fifth novel that I've had published. And I think you learn about yourself early on in your writing career. Mm -hmm. um, and now I find that writing is, is like a test of my skills, like how many spinning saucers can I keep in the air? <laughs> and, um, you know, things like 
uh, like dealing with, you know, family issues and things like that. I, I feel like I did in my science fiction novels early on. Well, when you're, de- when you're creating an emotional life of a character, though, mm-hmm. is it fair to say that you are drawing on your own knowledge of your own emotional life? That and, um, you know, as a high school teacher, I pretty much saw every emotional state a person could be in, <laughs> and so I also draw from that experience. There you go. <laughs> well, we are, we are out of time. Um, you've been listening to Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Toos, and I've been really privileged to interview Su- Suzanne Feldman about her new book, Sisters of the Great War. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.